Father, once again we come to you this evening on bended knee, asking for wisdom and understanding into your word. And Lord, we realize that we cannot understand any part of this book of Revelation unless first you've given us victory over sin and you've cleansed us from all unrighteousness. So Lord, please pour out your blood upon us and cover our sins with thy blood this evening that we may be able to comprehend the things that are written in this most important chapter of Revelation. Bless us now with the Holy Spirit. May he inspire our minds through your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are going to endeavor to finish Revelation chapter 12 this evening. So we have a bit to cover, but this main section for this next hour is entitled The Woman and the Remnant. The Woman and the Remnant. Now we've already looked at the first 12 verses, and as you know, verse 1 and 2 cover the woman, verse 3 and 4 cover the dragon. Verse 5 and 6 cover the man-child and the woman fleeing into the wilderness. And then verses 7 through 12 cover pretty much the war in heaven all the way down to the cross when Satan was cast out. So that is what we've looked at so far in Revelation and we're going to endeavor to finish the rest of these verses this evening. Now remember, Revelation 12 actually is the central chapter, the most important chapter out of all of them, certainly not um, saying that the other chapters are not important at all, but chapter 12 is really the main chapter which highlights everything, the theme of Revelation, victory over sin or Jesus Christ, and time is what? Short. So let's get into this. Revelation chapter 12, and we're looking at verse 13, continuing on. Revelation 12 and verse 13. The Bible says, And when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. Now, when again was that dragon cast down to the earth? At the cross. That was when Satan was actually cast down. So, of course, this gives us a time period, but we see here the picture of the dragon. Now, dragon is related to persecution. As we see clearly in this, this verse, 13, that the dragon, when he was cast down to the earth, he persecuted the woman, which brought forth the man-child. Now, this also gives us a bit of time framing because it was after that the child came out that the dragon started to persecute the woman then. Well, in this verse, anyways, we know that the dragon, Satan, has always been persecuting God's people in the past. But this verse 13 gives us that time framing. Persecution after the cross. Now, this happened in a literal sense to the Jews that existed back then. As, we, as you know, if you studied history, Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. AD 70. And so, to a large extent, pagan Rome was persecuting God's people, especially after the cross as well. But at the same time, it also refers to the spiritual Jews, which were to be persecuted during the Dark Ages and even, of course, up till our day too. So we are the spiritual Jews, unless there is actually a literal Jew sitting here, a person of heritage from the Jews. No? Okay. So we are all spiritual Jews. We're all Gentiles. So this also refers to that time period as well, our time period, and also, of course, the Dark Ages. So the dragon here really has two forms already, we see. Pagan Rome and who else? 
papal Rome. Keep that in mind, okay? Uh, the dragon here at least represents two entities, and that is pagan Rome and also papal Rome, because it goes from uh, AD 31, the crucifixion, up till our day. Two kingdoms have persecuted God's people since then. So the dragon, of course, being Satan underlying it all, working through pagan Rome and papal Rome. Now let's move on. Verse 14. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. Now, a few things I want you to see here. First, we see a common time period again. Time, times, and half a time. Now, where have we seen that before? Daniel where? Daniel 7, verse 25. That's correct. So, that's exact same time period lines up. Time, times, and half a time. Or time, times, and dividing the time. Three and a half times. Which we see here that the woman is what? Running into the wilderness. And of course, if we come down to verse 6, it says the woman fled into the wilderness. The same woman, same picture. Woman fled into the wilderness, where she hath a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. So that's how we know that a time times and half a time equals 1,260 days. But on top of that, one thing else I want you to notice is that now, in verse 13, who was persecuting the Jews or the spiritual Jews? It was a dragon. But now we see here in verse 14 that she's hiding from who? The face of the serpent. So once again, we see a picture of how the dragon uses two different forms to persecute. First, dragon in terms of persecution, but what did serpent represent again? Deception or winds of doctrine. Okay, but keep that in mind. Now here we see that the woman is what? Flying into the wilderness on, with two wings of a great eagle. Now, what do we know about a great eagle or an eagle or eagle's wings in the Bible? Let's go to Exodus. Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, and we're looking at verse 4. What does this eagle's wings show or symbolize when the woman is flying into the wilderness? Exodus 19 and verse 4. The Bible here says, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you. Who is the you here referring to? Speaking of the Israelites. So he says, How I bear you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. So here God is speaking to Moses. And he says, Look, remember how I protected you from the Egyptians. I brought you unto myself. So here he's illustrating with what? Eagles' wings. Eagles' wings symbolizing their protection protection. And so when we see the woman running into the wilderness with eagle's wings, we know that although she's hiding, she's being protected by God. So she's preserved, so to speak, by God. Okay, but let's look at another text. Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 31. What else about eagle's wings or eagle? Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 31. The Bible says, But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk 
and not faint. So when this mentions about the eagle's wings, what is it comparing to? Allowing us to do what? To do what? To run and not be weary and walk and not be faint. But what do we have to run or walk in regards to? What is it speaking about? When we see the woman born upon eagle's wings, she's first being protected, but what else? She's running, but she's not weary. She's walking, and she's not faint. But in a great sense, this also applies to our day. Because, friends, the persecution is yet to come again. And we need to understand this message too here. Now let's go to Hebrews chapter 12. In regards to this running and walking, what are we running or walking towards? Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. In relation to eagle's wings, which allows us to run and walk, not be weary or faint. Hebrews 12, 1. The Bible says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the what? Sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. So what do we ought to do? Run with patience. But before we can run with patience, what do we have to do? Lay aside what? Every weight, which is sin. That sin which does so easily beset us. So we know that this woman who is running into the wilderness is not the apostate woman or Jezebel that we saw in Revelation 2, or that harlot in Revelation 17 is referring to that woman that we saw at the beginning, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 1. So she is protected by God, and she's laid aside every weight of sin. Now, she also, it also says that when she ran into the wilderness or flew into the wilderness, that she was nourished there for a time, times, and half a time. Now, in what way was she actually nourished? For 1,260 years. How was she nourished? Well, if we go to Revelation chapter 2, it speaks of that hidden manna. Now, what does manna represent in the Bible? The Word of God. Now, we went through that when we went through the churches. But here we look at Revelation 2, 17. It's a promise that was given to the church Pergamos. And remember, this promise was for the future. Now let's read this. Revelation 2.17, the Bible says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna. And that promise was in the future. Why? Because what church was coming next? Thyatira. And what time period did that church cover? 538 to 1798. Or a time, times, and half a time. So clearly, when it says that she was nourished for a time, times, and half a time from the face of the serpent, God had food prepared for her. He had the Word of God still prepared for her. So we know that at least during the Dark Ages, although the woman was in hiding, or the church, because that's what woman represents, although the church was in hiding, God still had a group of faithful people through this 1260-year period. And He's always preserved His people throughout each age, no matter what they've gone through. And I know today for a fact, in church Laodicea, God has faithful people. But when we look at this nourished, she's nourished for a time, times, and half time with what? The Word of God. 
Now, here's the observation that I made. In verse 13, we see a dragon. The dragon was wroth or angry with that woman when he was cast out to the earth, and he persecuted her. But then in verse 14, we see the face of a serpent. Transition. But yet, to a large degree, Satan has used both. Persecuting power and also what? Deception. All right? False doctrines. Winds of doctrines. So he's used both in a way to persecute God's people. And when one didn't work, when he's persecuting God's people, and it said during the Dark Ages when they were dying, it fueled the fires of people's hearts as well. It caused them to look upon these people who were singing in the midst of a literal fire being burnt to death. They were singing hymns. And so when that tactic didn't work, Satan tried to deceive them with doctrines. But then, of course, when that doesn't work again, he brings back out the persecution. So through and through, Satan has been using both the dragon and the serpent, two faces, to try to persecute God's people. And it's going to happen again. False doctrines and persecution. We looked at that, at that last night, too, in Matthew 24. Pardon me, the night before. So there were two types of persecution during the 1260-year period, doctrinal and also physical. So these are the two things that we see from verses 13 and 14. Moving on. Verses 15 through 16 of Revelation chapter 12. Verse 15. And the serpent cast out his mouth, out of his mouth, water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon cast out of his mouth. Now, what I just illustrated just previously on the previous slide is this. Look, in verse 15, who cast out the water from his mouth? Who was it? Serpent. Then we look at verse 16, and it says, and swallowed up the flood, which who cast out? Dragon. So we see here the same picture Satan using both first the serpent and then changes it to dragon. Used interchangeably. Exact same being or creature, but uses two different faces. Now, it says that the serpent casts out of his mouth. Now, what do we understand about the mouth? Let's go over to Matthew chapter 12 and verse 34. Why did, does this picture illustrate that the serpent cast out of his mouth a flood? I imagine the serpent must be pretty big to cause a flood. Okay, why does it say mouth? Matthew 12, verse 34. Now Jesus here is speaking to the Pharisees. And he says, O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? And then he says, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. So here, when it relates to that, the mouth, here it's relating to what? The heart issue. So it's showing what sort of nature or character this being is. It casts out a flood from its mouth. Now when we look at this, okay, before we go on, pardon me, let's go over to Daniel 7.25. You see, we know that when it comes to the serpent, It was in relation to a time, times, and half a time, correct? And in Daniel 7.25, it also has this exact same time period, but it also speaks about a mouth. 
a mouth. Daniel 7.25, what does this correlate with in terms of Revelation 12? Daniel 7.25, the Bible says, and he shall speak great words against the Most High. So once again, illustrating that using his mouth, he is here what? Speaking great words against the Most High. And of course, we go to the end, it says that he shall be given into his hands, they shall be given into his hands for a time, times, and dividing of time. So talk about the same power. And we know that the little horn of Daniel 7 is none other than the Antichrist, the papacy, the Catholic Church system there. So somehow the Antichrist here is speaking great words against the Most High. What sort of words is this? If we go to Revelation 13, 5, it expands on how this little horn is speaking but of course, in Revelation 13, we get a different picture. It's no longer a little horn, it's a composite beast. And we're going to get that to that tomorrow night. But in verse 5, what we're interested in is about a mouth speaking great things. Here in Revelation 13, 5, it says, And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and what? Blasphemies. So when this serpent casts out of his mouth a flood, it's related to speaking great words or words against the Most High, and also related to the word what? blasphemy. And it's related to doctrinal, because out of the heart the mouth speaketh, and the serpent is what? Deceptive. So it's somehow related to doctrine. So what do we know about blasphemy in the Bible? Well, there's at least two that I know of how the Bible defines blasphemy. Let's go first to John 10, 33. John chapter 10 and verse 33. How does the Bible actually define blasphemy? Okay. John chapter 10 and verse 33. The Bible says, The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy. And because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. These Jews, they were, com <coughs> they were saying to Jesus, You're committing blasphemy. Because you're a man and you're saying that you're God. Now, was Jesus actually committing blasphemy? No, he was God. But blasphemy, according to the Bible, and especially here, it's a man that what? Makes himself God. Now, secondly, the second definition, Luke chapter 5. Let's go there. Second definition of blasphemy. Luke chapter 5 and verse 21. Luke 5, 21. The Bible says here they're accusing Jesus again of speaking blasphemy. But what is it? And the scribes and Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this which speaketh blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So what was blasphemy according to Luke 5.21? A man claiming to forgive sins. So at least we know that when this serpent cast a flood out of its mouth relating to doctrinal deception, it's saying at least two things. I'm a, I'm a God. And of course, when we looked at the fall of Lucifer, his problem for, for, um, when it originated for the war in heaven, he wanted to be like God. He wanted to plant his seat, his throne in the sides of the north. And secondly, a man claiming to forgive sins. Two things. But what does water represent in the Bible? What does water represent in the Bible? 
Let's go to, that's a, correct, it represents doctrine, but let's go attach a Bible text to that, okay? Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 2. What does the water represent here? Now remember, it's a serpent casting out water. But at the end, who's casting out water? It's a dragon. So we'll get to the dragon in a minute. But here in Deuteronomy 32 and verse 2, the Bible says, My doctrine shall drop as the rain. My speech shall distill as the dew, as a small rain upon the tender herb, and as the showers upon the grass. So there, water represents what? Doctrine. And because it's a serpent that's casting out, it's deceptive doctrine. Man claiming a man claiming to be God, at least, and a man claiming to forgive sins. Now, the papacy cast out of his mouth a lot of false doctrines or winds of doctrine, and two of them at least I know of. There's many out there. Indulgences? Do you know what indulgences is? Pardon me? Exactly. Paying money to get forgiveness of sin. The more you pay, the more forgiveness you have the less time your relatives are going to burn in hell. That's, that's what it was thought of. And you know what? Asian, Chinese people do the same thing too, unfortunately. But mass as well. Mass, really, a counterfeit sanctuary on earth. So, there's many out there. And recently I just purchased a book which talks about how Christianity picked up paganism. Even like the, how you do the symbol of the cross on your chest, that's not Christian. It comes from pagan roots. There's a lot of things that we brought from paganism into Christian churches. And that happened around 508 AD. I think we've covered this history before when the man by a name of what? Does anybody know? Justinian. He faked a conversion and he brought in all his pagans with him into the Christian church. So that is how, I mean, there's a lot of history and I want to challenge you guys to go back and read that because we don't have time to go through all these symbols and things like that. We might have time in the future, but remember these things, okay? Now, the serpent is also the dragon. And what do we know about the dragon again? It persecutes. That's the other face of the dragon, okay? Now, what does the water represent in this sense? Let's go to Revelation seventeen fifteen. Certainly doctrines, but Revelation seventeen fifteen, it tells us that the waters which thou sawest where the horse sitteth are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. A lot of people. But when it comes out of the mouth of the dragon, what sort of people are they going to produce? People that persecute. Now, how did the papacy persecute through the Dark Ages? With armies. When in 508, Justinian pledged his armies to the papacy. Then in 538, it was at that time, 508, it was setting up for papal supremacy. Combination of church and state. And if you study Daniel all the way from the beginning, you've always, you'll always see that one thing that stands right through it is when church and state combine equals persecution. That's what always happens. Church and state combined equals persecution. And so when this dragon was casting out waters as a flood, it was persecuting. But here's a question. Where do we first know of a flood in the Bible? Noah. Okay? 
Now, why did God send a flood? What was his purpose? It was to destroy all those wicked. If you go back and read in Genesis that it talked about how God looked upon the earth and he saw people's hearts and it was evil continually. That means they never even stopped thinking about being evil. And so that's the reason why God decided to send a flood to destroy everybody. So flood, in a sense, represents destruction, okay? But here in Revelation 10, uh, 12, who is actually sending out the flood? It's not God. It's the dragon, the serpent. With intention to who? Destroy who? God's people. Now let's go to Matthew 24 and we'll see the picture of Noah and this flood. Matthew 24 and verses 37 to 39. Matthew 24, verses 37 to 39. Speaking of Noah, But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, who are the ones that were taken away here in this story? Who was taken away of the flood? Hmm? The sinners. Because why? It says in verse 39, and knew not. Who didn't know? No one knew. He didn't know the exact day, but he got on that ark. That's why he knew. And knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So the taking away in this instance in relation to Noah was taking away or destroying the sinners. Now keep that in mind. And let's go to Revelation 12 again. And verse 16. Pardon me, verse 15. Revelation 12, 15. It says, And the serpent cast out his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. She's trying to, I guess, reenact what happened in Noah's day. But Satan's probably saying, Well, you killed my people, I'm going to kill yours. But a spiritual flood to carry away that woman, to destroy her. And certainly during the Dark Ages, Satan did all that he could to eradicate God's people. But what happened? She flew into the wilderness and she was fed there for a time, times and half a time with hidden manna. So very similar parallelism with a lot of Old Testament stories that we're seeing here. As you know, the Israelites throughout the wilderness, they were protected of God, as he said there in Exodus 19, but also they ate manna as well. So there's a lot of parallelism. It'll do us well to actually go back to study the Old Testament stories because Ecclesiastes tells us the history is going to repeat itself. God requires the things of the past. So who are those that were taken away? Those that didn't enter into the ark, they were taken away to be destroyed. Now, so when the flood is mentioned, it is in relation to destruction and God's enemies overcoming or persecuting them. Not in the case of Noah, but spiritually. When every time a flood has been mentioned, it has always been in relation to God's enemies overcoming them. Let's look at a few texts. 
Let us go to Isaiah 59 and verse 19. Isaiah 59, 19. Isaiah 59, verse 19, it says, So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west, and his glory from the rising of the sun, when the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. So when the enemy comes in like a flood, they're showing what? God's enemies. But then it says the Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. Or could I say that God will cover us with the eagle's wings. Protection. Another text, Psalm 69, verses 1 through 4, to show that the flood is there referring to God's enemies, those that persecute His people. Psalms 69, verses 1 through 4. Psalm 69, verses 1 through 4. The Bible says, Save me, O God, For the waters are come into my soul. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I am come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary of my crying. My throat is dried. Mine eyes fail while I wait for my God. And then verse 4. They that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of mine head. They that would destroy me being mine enemies wrongfully are mighty. Then I restored that which I took not away. Once again, David is crying out and says, the waters have overflowed me, the floods are coming to here. Lord, my enemies, referring to the flood, my enemies are more than the hairs of my head. So clearly, through and through, we see that the flood represents those that persecute God's people. But then it says further on in Revelation 12 that the earth opened up her mouth, or the earth opened up and helped the woman. It swallowed up that flood. So, this gives us a time framing first. The earth opening up to help the woman must exist sometime around 1798 when the woman comes out of the wilderness. Because you see, the, the woman was in hiding. In hiding for a time, times and half a time. So it's only when, in verse 15, the serpent casts out his mouth as water, as flood after the woman, that the earth comes out. So the earth must exist sometime during 1798. Okay? This is just time framing first. But what is opposite to earth? What is opposite to the earth? Water, the sea. Okay? And what does water represent again? Lots of people. So therefore, the earth must represent few people or no people. Okay, we're getting some identifying marks of this earth first. And so, it comes up around 1798, and it's a sparsely populated place. Now, historians refer to Europe as the old world. The old world. And the new earth was referred to who? It was placed upon who? United States of America. And therefore, this sparsely populated place was United States of America. And it was in 1776. I know, 
you know, Americans, as I've traveled around, I've found one thing common between all Americans. They're very patriotic. So you have to know the date 1776, correct? What happened in 1776? Declaration of Independence. So it's around 1798, 1776, that the earth came out and helped those that were being persecuted. And so the United States was set up then as a country around that time. Okay? Now this date is important as it will give us the timing of the remnant. Verse 17 is what brings out the remnant. So keep this in mind, okay? This date, very important. Okay, let's move on. Verse 17. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, first, let's look at this dragon. Who did the dragon represent again? Satan, okay? But remember, Satan was referring to, uh, was working through who? Pagan Rome first, and then who next? Papal Rome. So Satan here, when it says that the dragon was wroth with a woman, at this point in time, it must be referring to Papal Rome. Why? Because it was during those dark ages. But after that, it says the dragon was wroth with a woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. That is no longer Papal Rome. It is actually the United States of America. Now, we're going to get into Revelation 13 tomorrow. But come with me to verse 11 of Revelation 13, and I want to show you this. How I know that the dragon here is also referring to the United States of America. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 11. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. So, this dragon has three phases which it works through. First, being pagan Rome. Second, being papal Rome. And third, being United States of America. Underlying all this is Satan working. Okay? So chapter 13 explains very much in detail what is going to happen or what is expounding on verse 17. So when we see here that the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, Chapter 13 expands on that and how the dragon is going to persecute the woman and her remnant. Keep that in mind as we study that tomorrow. But it says that it was wroth with the woman, okay? Now, where have we, see a similar, have we seen a similar picture? If we go to Daniel 3.19, and this is where your understanding and study of Daniel must come in once again, as I, I'm, I'm sure you must have heard it too many times already but that we need to go back and study Daniel for a foundation in Revelation. Daniel chapter 3 and verse 19. Now this story is about Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon at that time. And Daniel 2 had just passed. In succession, it was time framing. It came after Daniel 2. Daniel 2 was a picture of this gold, this image that Nebuchadnezzar dreamt. Gold head, chest and arms of silver, brass thighs, iron legs, and iron feet, uh, iron and clay of uh, the feet, right? And so Nebuchadnezzar here, he says, I don't like my kingdom just being the head. So in verse, uh, chapter 3, he makes his image all out of gold. 
And he, say, he invites all the leaders. And he says, when you hear this music played, I want you to bow down. But of course, three people didn't bow down. Their names were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And in verse 19, when Nebuchadnezzar saw that, he asked him to come and he questioned them. And these three young men, I believe they were probably younger than me, probably about age 20. They said, King, whether it be right in the sight of God or of you, we are not going to bow down to this image. And here in verse 19, and when, he, when Nebuchadnezzar heard that, it says, Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the form of his visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore he spake and commanded that they should heat the furnace one seven times more than it was wont to be heated. So he was so angry that his visage changed. I could almost imagine, when we look at this prophetically, he was so angry that it changed from a serpent. Because remember, the serpent in Genesis 3 was putting doubt into Eve's mind. So when Nebuchadnezzar questioned the three young boys and asked them to come, he says, are you sure you want, you, you know, you're going to burn if you don't bow down to the image. But when they said no, he changed his form, became a dragon, and he persecuted them. But what was the reason why he persecuted them? What is the reason why he was going to throw them into the fire? Because they would not what? Worship the image. They were going against his law. And that's exactly the same reason why this dragon went to make war with the woman. Because the war. Now, where did we see war in Revelation 12 again? Other than verse 17? If we go over to verse 7 of Revelation 12, it says, And there was war in heaven. And the exact same reason why this dragon in verse 17 is making war with the woman and her seed was the exact same reason why he made war in heaven. He had a problem with God's law. Satan had a problem with God's law and exactly the same reason why he's persecuting God's remnant. Why? Because it says in verse 17 that this remnant, they keep the commandments of God. And so that made Satan really angry because earth was meant to be his. So really, the foundation of everything that we see here through and through is the problem or well, the controversy has always been over the law of God. The law of God. So keep that in mind, okay? Now, one thing that I really want to say here is that the most important entity that I see out in all of this is the remnant. Because what we've studied to a large degree from verse 1 to 16, majority of it is history. It's already in the past. But when, when we get to verse 17, it suddenly becomes current to us and it becomes something that is going to be forecasted into the future. Because of this word remnant, this remnant people. Now, what do you understand about the word remnant? What does it mean? The, the what? The remaining? Ladies, who has been to remnant sale before? This, this illustration really is out of date, isn't it? 
But what I know about the remnant is at least it's the same as the original. It's just the last piece. So therefore, if you've got a roll of cloth and you call it in this illustration where ladies will go to remnant sales in cloth shops, it's really they're selling off the last piece of cloth. It's exactly the same, same material, same pattern, same color. It's just the last piece. And that's all that, when it comes to the word remnant, that's all that it's describing. It's not different in any um, way or sort of way. It just looks exactly the same. Okay? Now, you see this. In verse 17, it says the remnant is the remnant of who? Who is the, who is the remnant coming out from? The woman. Now, where did we see this woman? We saw it right at the beginning. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 1. Now, if you were with us when we study the characteristics of this woman, she was clothed in a light and she was standing upon the moon. Now, what did the clothes of the sun represent? Righteousness. But what is righteous? We looked at that, Psalms 119, 172. What is righteous? The commandments of God. All the commandments of God are righteous. And we see here in 1217 that the remnant keep the commandments of God. Now, what did the moon represent? The moon represented a faithful witness. Psalms, I think it was Psalms 89. The moon represented a faithful witness. And the purpose of the witness was to what? Testify. Testify of who? Jesus Christ, John 5.39. And we see the same characteristic brought out here, Revelation 12.17, and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So the remnant is no different from the beginning, Revelation 12.1, really referring to the Israelites and then the apostolic church. So same characteristic, same through and through. But what else do we understand about the remnant? Let's go to Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 9. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 9. What do we know here or understand about the remnant? Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 9. The Bible says, Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant. What do we know about the remnant there? They're very small. The remnant will be very small. Okay? First thing. Keep that in mind. Secondly, let's go to Zephaniah 3.13. It speaks here of the remnant, but it gives them a little bit different of a name. Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 13. What do we know about the remnant here? Zephaniah 3.13, the Bible says, The remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity, nor speak lies, neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. For they shall feed and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Now what was what they called here? The remnant of who? Israel. The remnant of Israel. And they were given two types of characteristics. Firstly, they shall not do iniquity. Now what is iniquity? Sin. Isaiah 59 verse 1 and 2. Now if you're sinning, what is sin? What's the definition of sin? Transgression of the law. So if you're not sinning, that means you're not breaking the commandments. You are doing what? You're keeping the commandments. Secondly, the second characteristic was that they shall not speak lies, nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. Or really, I could say, they have no guile. 
keep these two characteristics in mind. But first, well, I want to go back. Remnant of who? Israel. Now, if we go to Revelation chapter 7 and verse 4, you'll find that Israel is mentioned again. Israel. But it also speaks of remnant here in Revelation 7. Let's go there. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 4. Who are the remnant of Israel? Revelation chapter 7 and verse 4. The Bible says, And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed an hundred and forty and four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. So who is spiritual Israel in this sense? Who are that remnant of Israel? It is the hundred and forty-four thousand. But I want to make it clear here. The hundred and forty-four thousand are taken out of the remnant. They are not the remnant. They are taken out of the remnant. Why? Because at the end of days, before Jesus Christ comes back for a second time, there are going to be a lot of martyrs. And these martyrs truly are part of the remnant, but they're not part of the 144,000. Okay? Keep that thought in mind. Uh, put it on the shelf for a little while as we are going to come back to it when we get to Revelation 14, as we study the 144,000. But the 144,000 are taken out of the remnant. They're part of it. Not, they're not the whole. Now, if we come up to Revelation chapter 14, remember one of the characteristics that we read in Zephaniah 3.13? First of them, they would will keep the commandments of God. They would do no iniquity. And secondly, they would not speak lies or no guile. Now, let's read Revelation 14 and verse 5. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 5, it says, And in their mouth, whose mouth? Who is there referring to? 144,000. Revelation 14.1. Here, let's read that. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him an hundred and forty and four thousand. So we know that when we come down to verse 5, it says, And, and in their mouth, the hundred and forty-four thousand's mouth was found no guile. Exactly describing Zephaniah 3.13. So in a large way, the remnant really is almost referring to just the hundred and forty-four thousand. But I know for a fact that the 144,000 are taken out of the remnant. Okay, keep that in mind. So the remnant is compared to as the 144,000. And this is the reason why I put this church militant versus church triumphant up here was that I wanted to help you understand something. Today, there is a remnant church. And we're going to identify that in a minute. But the remnant church is not the remnant why? Because we're still in the church militant stage. And what do I mean by church militant? That means the church is still in a combative stage. They're still fighting, fighting against error. So really within the church, there are wolves in sheep's clothing. Still, I pray that it's none of us here. But even Jesus himself said in a parable that the tares and the wheat will go together till the end of time. So even within God's remnant church, there are tears until the end of time. Until when God shakes all of them out, then will the church finally be triumphant. They will be without spot or wrinkle. But at the moment, we're in the Laodicean church. Amongst God's people, there are faithful people, but the whole church is not the remnant in itself. Do you understand what I mean? Because the remnant is defined of two things. What are they again? 
Revelation 12, 17, they do what? Keep the commandments of God, and they also have the testimony of Jesus Christ. But who is this remnant? Well, let's look at 1 Peter chapter 2, and verse 22. It gives us some idea of who this remnant actually is. Not identifying the church, so to speak, but 1 Peter chapter 2, and verse 22. Speaking of Jesus Christ, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. He says, Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Speaking of Jesus Christ, he didn't sin, and he had no guile. Who else had no guile in Revelation? Who were described as having no guile? The 144,000. You see, friends, Jesus Christ and the 144,000 are going to look exactly the same in character. Exactly the same. I imagine when Jesus Christ comes for a second time and he looks out upon the earth and he sees his scattered remnant all over the earth. I I can just imagine he's going to look down and he's going to realize who they are straight away. He's going to know the difference from the wheat and the tares straight away. Why? Because they're going to look exactly like him. The remnant are going to look exactly like him. He's going to look down there and say, hey, I see myself. Come on. I know you. You look like me. Character-wise, not physical. So in a large degree, the 144,000 are really reflecting the character of Jesus Christ. Or, as I would say in Revelation 12, 1, they've learned to put on Jesus Christ. They've learned to put on His righteousness. Friends, if we are to strive to be part of the 144,000, we have to be like Jesus in character. That is our standard. Not anybody else. Jesus Christ is our standard for us to reach that character perfection. But in Genesis 3.15, this is what I'd really like to look at here. Genesis 3.15. Speaking of that great prophecy, the first prophecy that was given all the way back in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve fell. Jesus is speaking to the serpent. He's already, he's about to deal with the man and the woman, but he's going to deal with the serpent first, who is Satan. Verse 15, it says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman. And between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, it says that there was going to be enmity between the woman and the serpent, always. Between her seed, or could I say the remnant, and the serpent's seed. And it says that it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Of course, referring to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, where in Isaiah 53 it says that he was bruised for our iniquities. But actually, do you know that we actually have a part in crushing Satan? In a large degree, it was done at the cross by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ had attained, obtained that victory. But there's actually a part for us to play in bruising the head of Satan. Let's go to Romans chapter 16. How can we bruise the head of Satan? Very interesting. Romans 16 and verse 20. 
Now, Romans was written by Paul. It was after the death of Jesus Christ because it was only, Paul was only converted after Jesus Christ had risen. So when he was writing this, we know that it's not referring to the past. If we read 16 and verse 20 of Romans, it says, And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. Whose feet? Your feet, our feet. He wasn't referring to Jesus Christ. So somehow we have a part to play in bruising the serpent's head. How are we going to bruise it? With our what? Feet. With our feet. Now what does feet represent? Let us go to Ephesians chapter 6. What does feet represent? How can we bruise Satan? I don't think it's literal. What does Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 15 say? How are we able to bruise the head of Satan? Ephesians 6, 15, the Bible says, And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So what does feet represent there? The gospel. So somehow we're going to be able to bruise Satan's head with the gospel. Now, in Matthew 24, 14, the Bible says, And the gospel of this kingdom shall be preached in all the world, for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. So this gospel is to go where? To all the world. So where do we see in the Bible a gospel that goes to all the world? Revelation chapter 14 and verse 6. Now this gospel has to be about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who helped us to overcome sin. So in turn, we ought to go out there and teach people and help people to overcome their sin. But we can't go out and help them until we have attained victory ourselves. Keep that in mind. But Revelation 14, 6, let's read that. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. Sounds like a worldwide gospel to me, friends. This is the gospel that we ought to be preaching today. It's the gospel of the three angels' message. And it is this message that will crush Satan finally. It is that message that will hasten or bring in the second coming of Jesus Christ. So we look at this remnant. First, the remnant has to arise sometime after 1798 in the New World, United States of America. And this remnant must keep the commandments of God. This characteristic alone, it separates so many churches, divides or puts away so many churches away. Because the majority of the churches are only, uh, are only following nine of the ten. The Sabbath message. But then, at the same time, it must have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to look at the testimony of Jesus Christ in the next session. But friends, this is none other than Seventh-day Adventist Church. I don't say it with pride, and we ought not to feel pride in our hearts when we say this. I know that you believe this, or else you wouldn't be sitting here. If you don't come, if you come to church and every week you think it's the wrong church, why do you keep coming, correct? We ought to believe that we are in the correct church. 
but not coming in with pride, of course. But friends, God has outlined His remnant church in the last days, and I believe it to be the Seventh-day Adventist church. In some way, if, it has, if we have come across wrong, if I have studied the Bible incorrectly, then you need to show me. But standing upon the Word of God as my witness, as my sole, sole authority, I believe that God has invested in the Seventh-day Adventist church its remnant characteristics, its qualities. And we need to understand that, you know, to be part of the remnant goes beyond just joining a church, friends. We need to do at least two things. We need to keep the commandments of God, and we need to have the testimony of Jesus Christ. But thirdly, in Revelation 14.5, it says that they have no guile. And I pray that all of us would live up to the standard of character, not on our own strength, but by learning to put on the robe of righteousness of Jesus Christ, learning how to have the, the aspect or the understanding of righteousness by faith. So I pray that that will be our experience this evening, that all of us have learnt to put on Jesus Christ. And so this is Revelation 12. In the next hour, we will be covering the testimony of Jesus Christ. So let's pray at this point in time, shall we? Let's kneel. Lord, we humbly come to you this evening, thanking you for the truth that you've revealed to us through Revelation chapter 12. And Father, I thank you that you have decided to have this remnant church in the last days. And Lord, I pray that as our hearts understand this message, as we draw close to understanding of the prophecies, as the Seventh-day Adventist Church has been outlined in prophecy, Lord, help us to be more humble than ever, that we have this great task before us to set before the whole world, O Lord, your great message of the three angels. And so, Lord, help us all here earnestly to not rest until we have given to this world a message and its understanding of what these three angels are speaking of. Bless us, I pray, O Lord, and teach us each day to put on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.